0: Good evening, and welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors go to share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, Ben Hogan Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Wonder, the Salt Creek Golf Retreat, TaylorMade Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, and Superspeed Golf. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for joining me tonight here on Next on the T. I hope you're doing really well. I know I'm getting excited for Masters Week next week. My son and I will be headed out to Augusta National next Monday for the practice round. Please, God, no rain this year. Please, no rain. You guys know how much I adore Augusta National. It's my favorite place on the planet. I love everything to do about those grounds and that tournament. It's a very, very special place, and, you know, if uh, if you've never been, TV folks just doesn't do it justice. It doesn't do how beautiful it is justice because it's even more beautiful in person. You don't get a sense of the topography uh, for what the Augusta National is like because the elevation changes are way more severe than what you see out there on TV. But uh, it's just such a wonderful place. Not a blade of grass is out of place Discolored. there's not a weed to be found. Every detail has been thought through in the concession stands, boy, you want to talk about a place you know, and I, I'm sure all of you have been to a sporting event, a concert you're used to paying six eight 10 dollars for a beer and five six seven eight dollars for a hot dog, not when you go to augusta Nest. sandwiches are a dollar fifty two dollars a coke is about a dollar dollar fifty a beer is going to cost you about three dollars It's absolutely wonderful everything about. Being there is absolutely spectacular. Boy, I just can't wait to get there next week. And tonight, we're going to be doing a lot of talking about the Masters as well. My first guest is not only one of my favorite guests here on the show, but also one of my favorite people on the planet and a guy I consider in many ways to be a mentor, and that is legendary broadcaster, Mr. Ben Wright. Looking forward to having Mr. Wright back on the show, talking about some of his favorite Masters memories, want to get his thoughts on the big three and why he thinks, Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Player were able to have so much uh, success at Augusta National over such a long period of time, about 40 years, those guys still very competitive. But Mr. Palmer's success there and in the majors confined to that six-year period of 1958 to 1964. Want to hear about his thoughts about that, who he thinks is going to win this year, and uh, so much more. It's always such a privilege to have him as part of the show. Can't wait to do it. He's going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from TaylorMade Golf CEO David Taylor TaylorMade brand and their players off to a great start so far this season. Dustin Johnson has a couple of wins. We all see how well Tiger is playing. Rory McElroy just won the Players' Championship. Ricky Fowler a little bit earlier this year. He made the switch to the TaylorMade TP5 golf ball, and then he got over the hump at the Waste Management Phoenix Open. So a lot to be excited about with the TaylorMade guys so far this year. So we're going to hear about that. We'll talk about their great new equipment for 2019, including their M5 and M6 drivers and irons as well, plus advancements they've made with their golf ball line. They're doing a lot of great things. We're going to hear all about it when David joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out tonight with a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter is another guy who means a great deal to me. When you talk about great host and great narrators. Well, you know what? Peter's the GOAT, my friends. Go online to his website, PeterKessler.com, and check out some of the classic interviews and videos that he has posted on his site recently. I'm going to be talking with Peter about them. He's got a couple of really good ones with Sam Snead and Jack Nicklaus. We'll talk about that. We'll get his uh, favorite master's memories and who he likes to be on top of the leaderboard come that Sunday evening. Peter's going to join me about 45 minutes from now. So a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And again, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I always like to remind you about my good friend Mitch Lawrence and his podcast, Talking Golf Getaways. He his co-host Darren Bunch. They let you know about great places to stay, play, and even eat and drink while you're there. Again, their show is called Talking Golf Getaways. Moved over to a new site, Golf Trip X, and that's the letter X which stands for expert. So golftripx.com. Go there, check out their show, and learn about some of the hidden gems, some of the wonderful places that we have to play and stay around the country. Mitch's twin brother, Matthew, also fantastic. You guys know how much I dig Matthew. He and uh, one of uh, our more recent guests, Perry French, who joined us last week, they have a great golf show as well called Backspin Golf, which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern time on WLXG ESPN Radio AM 1300 up in Lexington, Kentucky. The show is so much fun to listen to. Matthew's fantastic, and it's a great way to kick off your Sunday morning. Again, it's called Backspin Golf, and you can stream it live by going online to WLXG.com or do what I do, which is download the WLXG app. And, folks, you know we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from Steve Rondonero about what they've got going on up there this spring. Play the course's champions play at French Lick Resort.
1: (laughs) Laura Davies won the 2018 Senior LPGA title on our Peak Dye course. Colin Montgomery won the Senior PGA title here in 2015. For an experience drenched in history, play our Donald Ross course, where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship. It's never too early to plan that next buddy trip to play legendary golf at French Lake Resort, the Midwest's premier golf destination.
0: Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to friendflick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place they have up there and to book your stay as well. also want to tell you about our good friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Now, folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan irons since maybe the 80s or the 90s, do yourself a favor and get a demo iron from either their Fort Worth, PTX, or Edge irons. Go out on the range and compare it to whatever it is you have. And all Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. So no mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids by going online to BenHoganGolf.com, and they're going to build those clubs to your specifications and, best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Again, check out hybrids, bags, and accessories online at BenHoganGolf.com. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to BobbyJones.com. They've got their spring collection out now, and it looks absolutely spectacular. Plan ahead for spring and be among the first to sample their happy hour collection. Got my eye on some of their beautiful polos and sweaters. See what I'm talking about by going online to Bobby Jones. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Two Under. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Two Under Men's Performance Briefs, the unofficial underwear of the PGA Tour. Worn by PGA Tour players like Ricky Fowler, David Toms, Jerry Kelly, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, and Matt Everett to name just a few. Your buddies are going to think you're a stud if they're even seeing you in your underwear, but that's another story. And your girlfriend and her wife is going to love the side effects, a visibly enhanced profile. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management. It separates a man's most valuable assets from bodily contact to reduce unwanted skin on skin contact, providing less chafing, more control, and an altogether more luxurious feel. Start every round two under by wearing the coolest performance briefs on the market. Use code on the t 20 to save 20% off your order at two 2under.com And that's the number two, com. All right, folks, now back with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mr. Ben Wright. And it's always an honor for me to say that because Mr. Wright, in my mind, is the best broadcaster in golf history. For the wonderful way that he painted the scene and put an exclamation point on some of the most dramatic things that have happened in the game of golf people talk to me about the times that I've had Mr. Wright, it's uh, it's very, very special to me. He's a very special individual to me and very meaningful and uh, very supportive over the years. And I can't thank him enough for those sorts of things. And I always like to remind you that it was Ben Wright who used the phrase, yes, sir, to put an exclamation point on Jack Nicholas's ego putt on the 15th hole during the final round of the 1986 Masters. He used that phrase two holes in about 20 minutes before Vern Lundquist used it again. Following Nicholas's birdie putt on 17, but Mr. Wright is as much a part of the fabric of the Masters Tournament as anybody, and I am very honored. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Good evening, Mr. Wright. Thanks for coming back on the show.
2: It's my in, immense pleasure, uh, Chris. It really is. I, I love listening to you extol my uh, fading virtues. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, It's
0: always my extreme honor to have you here, Mr. Wright. And and before we get into all the other things that are going on around the game of golf and talk about the Masters and that sort of thing, I want to start off Mm -hmm. by getting an update from you about your course, Cliffs Valley, up there in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. You ready for another wonderful golf season up there? How's the golf course looking?
2: It really is in unbelievably good condition, Chris. Because I have, who I believe to be the best superintendent in the history, of, in the history of the game, at least from my point of view, a gentleman called Matt Stevens. He doesn't know union hours. It's his baby, and it's my baby, and the two of us, between us, just love the heck out of that golf
0: and speaking of your baby, I know you've got the Ben Wright Invitational tournament coming up a little bit later this summer, up in July. Uh, coming up in July.
2: Talk about that wonderful event. Well, um, I won the the, the inaugural um, Crystal Mountain Invitational with Michael Patrick Shields, uh, a, a leading Michigan broadcaster, who happens to be like a son to me and they asked me if I could name the event after them and so I did and we are going from strength to strength uh, Chris and the money goes to the first tee and uh, I, it, it's a very successful event it's sold out the moment it opens with waiting lists so I'm I'm really happy about that one. Mr. Wright,
0: as we look ahead, we've got Masters Week coming up next week, and, uh, boy, it's just—it's one of the most special weeks of the year for me and uh, for so many of us that love the game of golf. I wanted to get your thoughts. What, what are some of your favorite Masters memories from all the years you were a part of that tournament?
2: Well, obviously, 1986, and the great Jack Nicklaus is incredible uh, victory. But, you know, 1975 is very close up behind it because, you know, it, it came down to the, the three guys, Jack Nicklaus, uh Johnny Miller, and Tom Weisskopf. And all three had a chance to win. But Nicholas got in first for once, and the other two guys missed their respective putts that could have taken it into a playoff. And it was, that was as exciting as anything I've ever watched in my life.
0: And Mr. Wright, speaking of that 75 tournament, when Weiskopf birdied the 15th old to take a one stroke lead, you, your call was, that will be evil music, ringing in
2: Nicholas's ears. Did that just come to you, right on the spur of the moment? How'd you come up with that, Chris? Yes. You? Yes, I, it, everything comes on the spur of the moment, Chris. I, do, I don't take notes. All I take, all, all I used to take, my God, it's a long time ago, um, all I used to take to the tower was a bearing seat. The rest was off the top of my head. I, I honestly mean that. And, and and there are people who know me well enough and who were there who will know that that, that is the absolute truth. Um, I, I never rehearsed a single word I said. Mm. Wow. And... That day right after you made that call on 15 your broadcasting
0: partner Henry Longhurst said of Nicholas's 40-foot putt on 16 that he obviously makes for birdie to take uh, to tie for the lead at that moment that that was the greatest putt he had ever seen in his life. I'm sure you were watching over his shoulder and watching what was happening. Same for you, greatest putt you've ever seen?
2: I would say so. Yes, I probably was the greatest putt ever saw. And, you know, I've got to tell you this, Chris. I'm such a fan of Jack Nicklaus. Um Only Ben Hogan is close to being equal to him. But I was such a fan of Nicholas And when he hit the one-iron shot at the 17th hole in the 1970- two open pebble beats into a 40-mile-an-hour, well, not 40-mile-an-hour, when it couldn't have been 40-mile-an-hour, but it was damn close to it, and he hit that one arm against the flag stick, and it bounced literally less than a foot away for the birdie that won him that. That was the greatest shot. I ever saw in the whole of my life.
0: Mr. Wright, some people, including Tom Weisskopf himself, said when, when Nicholas made that putt on 16 and 75, it essentially broke his spirit. Did you ever talk to Weisskopf about that tournament and that putt and what went through his
2: mind as he was coming in? Absolutely. Um, he and I were quite close, and it, it was one of the great tragedies of the game of golf, that he was utterly, by his own admission, cowed by Nicholas's superiority. Um, they, you know, people say they were friends because they both came from Columbus, Ohio. Actually, Wisekoff, if I'm sure he'd agree with you, he hated Nicholas. Because he knew that Nicholas had the Indian sign on him. And when Weiskoff won the Canadian Open at Royal Montreal uh, by beating Nicholas in sudden death, the way he reacted uh, it was it was like a, a totally crazed person. It was such a relief to him. To ever get the better of Nicholas, and um, you know, there was a little uh, another side. Um, he regarded Nicholas as a rich man because his daddy had owned pharmacies, whereas Whitescove came up the hard way. There was not much money in the family, and um, it's one of the untold stories of golf. That rivalry. Uh, but, you know, when you think Weisskopf was runner up at Augusta four times, Chris, four times. And, right. you know, there was a man, He his swing was so, so much like what I call perfection. He should have won a dozen majors. But he was his own worst enemy. He behaved badly to himself for the longest time. Now I'm very happy to say he's dry and and he's a wonderful golf course architect. finest fellows I ever knew who really didn't get his due Mr. Ray, you
0: also talked about the 86 Masters and heading into that event. Nicholas was said to be too old. His clubs were too rusty. But boy, when I look back at the the history of the Masters and the leaderboards leading up to, you know, every year leading up to 86, 85, he Mm -hmm. finished tied for six, only four strokes behind Bernard Longer. It doesn't seem to me that it was that much of a stretch that he could contend again in 86. But during the production meetings prior to the tournament, was there any conversation about Nicholas, or was he completely overlooked heading into that event?
2: Completely overlooked, Chris. You know, I I, I can't agree more with with you because uh, you shouldn't have uh, overlooked him, but we did. We ignored him in the production meeting. No question about it. It was going to be Greg Norman. It was going to be Seve. It was going to be Tom Kite. It was going to be any number of players. He was not really seriously considered.
0: When you look at that. how that back nine started to unfold and the charge that he made, were the producers buzzing in your ear about Nicholas as he approached the 15th hole in 86? Or did all of that sort of die down after the bogey on 12? Did they discount him again? Or was there still a buzz that, you know, maybe he could pull this thing off?
2: No, you know there wasn't much of a buzz. Chris, because at that stage Sebby looked like a hot favourite, or Greg Norman, or Tom Kite. It was between the four of them, and it really you no, know, it was uh, it was almost you know almost okay. Let's get Nicholas through this hole. And then, then of course, he made the eagle that rewrote history or wrote history or whatever you like to call it. So
0: it it seems to me you were in the perfect position there at the 15th tower to see maybe one of the best strokes ever in Nicholas's eagle and maybe one of the worst strokes ever in Ballesteros hitting the ball into the water. Have you ever seen... Two great players kind of have that, you know, 180 degree difference on that one hole. Never,
2: never. And it's interesting you, uh, um, to bring that up because Simi and I had a very serious difference of opinion about my call, which would, I, I called it an absolutely dreadful shot. And the ball was destined over the water. And he questioned that. And we had a very nasty uh, falling out. The lasted almost a year. But he, God bless him, and God rest his soul, he reconciled with me. And he said, Ben, it was an absolutely dreadful shot. But he also, when we talked about it, Chris, we talked about it later, and I said, in my opinion, Seve, you hurried that shot because you were so scared about hearing these enormous ovations for Nicholas and that you wanted to try and get the shot played before, you know, Something nearly burst your ear. And he said, Ben, you are absolutely right. I hurried that shot and I paid the price. So, to that end, right?
0: So, as the, as the event sequence of events play out, he hits it in the water. Nicholas almost holds it on 16. What was that mm-hmm. from an emotional standpoint? What was that like for you and for Ballesteros to kind of, hey, that sort of played out, right? Worst shot you've ever seen, Nicholas almost holds it on 16, another big roar goes up. What was the impact, do you think, on Ballesteros from that point on?
2: Uh, I, you know, I saw his shoulders I, I, I It was almost as, as if he conceded. At that time, I was watching him very carefully. And uh, I I think I, I think that broke Seve in that instance, uh, Chris. I really do. As you watch Nicholas,
0: you talk about you know your affinity to Nicholas, and I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan. When you look at the history that Jack Nicholas had on the 16th hole at Augusta National, it's like that's mm-hmm. that hole should be his. There should be a huge plaque somewhere because of the things that he was able to pull off on the 16th hole. Talk about some of the things that you saw Nicholas do over the course of your career there at 16th.
2: Well, you know, uh, there are so many of them. Um, when I I, uh, I saw him win the British Open at Muirfield in 1966, and I trained David Thomas, the big Uh, Welshman to get uh, to win the event and he only finished second uh, uh, tied with Doc Sanders behind Nicholas and I I, I knew then when Nicholas made his breakthrough in the British Open that the dam was open forever he was going to sweep the board. That to me was the event that really, uh, really con- concentrated his ability to win everywhere. Because, you know, he, he, uh, he was a dismal failure until 1966. A very dismal failure. I mean, by his standards. For instance, you know, Mr. Carton, sixty-two and uh, sixty-three, nowhere, sixty-four, lost to Lima, sixty-five, lost to Peter Thompson, and it it, it was so overdue for him to win, and I think that really set him off uh, on his incredible way. Of course, he won over here before then. But I think the fact that he won the British Open was probably one of the biggest turning points in his his entire career. Mr. Wright,
0: looking ahead to next week's Masters, we see how well Tiger has been playing. People are saying he is the odds-on favorite to win it, but I I, I sort of have a little pause when I think about that. He's missing an awful lot of Four and five footers. And it seems to me if you're going to win at Augusta National, those need to almost be automatic. Those need to be going in yeah. with some regularity to in order to, yeah. to win the Green Jacket. But I don't know, your thoughts on what you're seeing from Tiger heading into the event?
2: Well, I, I mean, obviously, it would be one of the most great stories in the history of the game if he could win. But I I, I can't quite See it. Chris, I, as you said, he, he's not putting well enough. You're going to putt like God at Augusta to win the event. And I, I look no further than, than the brilliant putters. I don't like the fact of Rory. This is too many short putts. I don't like the fact that Justin Rose. This is too few, you know, too many short putts. I don't like the way Dustin Johnson misses short putts. So, you know, if I was if I was forced to bet, um, which I'll stop doing, um, I would say Bruce Kepka, for me, is a man who is impervious to any kind of mental strain and who is 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 He's got this immense power that he can overwhelm everything, but he holds everything when it matters. Um, I I really think it'll take he'll take a lot of beating in, in in next week's Masters,
0: Mr. Wright. Just a couple more before I let you go. And um, okay. one of the things I wanted to get your thoughts on is when I think about the big three: Jack Nichols, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer. Jack and Gary had a lot of success over a very long period of time. We all know about uh, you know their wins and the, you know starting in the early 60s, you know Gary player still winning in 74 and 78 but still being competitive into the 1980s. Jack Nicklaus obviously winning again in 86 but really mm. you look all the way all the way out to 1998 at 58 years old he still finished tied for six. So he had a lot of success in the majors and at Augusta National for a long period of time, Mr. Palmer, his success both at Augusta National and in the majors was fifty-eight to sixty-four. He he misses the he missed the cut in in sixty-eight and was really never a factor in the Masters or a major after that. Your thoughts? What? Why? Why were player and Nicholas able to be so competitive for so long, but Mr. Palmer wasn't?
2: Well, I think the Gary Player is probably the least recognized brilliant champion of all time, you know he won all these events he traveled millions and millions of miles, and i did I did several of them with him by the way, and yet he doesn't seem ever to have got his due. Al Palmer was uh, a comet that burned out. But the great thing was, he was such an incredible guy that he remained the king till his dying day. Nicholas, uh, you you can't say too much about Nicholas.
1: What he did, it, it will never
2: be approached, in my opinion. And of course, I don't think Tiger has any chance of approaching Nicholas. Nicholas is the greatest winning. Champion of all times,
0: Mister Wright. One more before I let you go, and that's just simply who who do you like? You mentioned Brooks Kepka. Who else do you think will be watching at the top of the leaderboard come uh, that Sunday
2: evening? <laughs> I don't. I I hope it's Rory because I love the guy. Uh, but um, that's that's for heart. I think probably Justin Rose would be a more cerebral pick.
0: Well, Mr. Wright, it's always a huge privilege for me to get to spend some time with you. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I hope I get the privilege of getting to spend some more time with you a little bit later on this year. You're uh, absolutely one of my all-time favorites.
2: Well, I love being on with you because you stimulate me, Chris, you stimulate me. <laughs> <laughs> well oh, I appreciate I, you saying that. I, I I enjoy the hell out of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I thank you very much for that. That means a great deal to me. Mr. Wright, enjoy the Masters, enjoy you know, the golf season and uh, thank you again for being here. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon.
2: I hope so too, Chris. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Wright. That is the great Ben Wright. And, folks, I I mean it very sincerely. There isn't anybody else that I would enjoy sitting down and talking about Masters history or the game of golf more than Ben Wright. Hopefully we get the privilege of catching up with Mr. Wright again very, very soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, David Ablees, I want to remind you about our friends at Super Speed Golf. Now used by over half the tour players around the world, Superspeed Golf is the fastest and most effective way to increase your swing speed. Three eight-minute training sessions per week are all you need to see a 5% increase in that swing speed. And with sets for golfers of all ages and over one year of included video instruction as well, Superspeed offers a complete solution to help you start bombing it off the tee. Visit them online at superspeedgolf.com to pick up your set today. And folks, well, TaylorMade Golf has done it again. The all-new TaylorMade M5 and M6 drivers have arrived, and folks, what a story. They both feature speed-injected twist face created through a revolutionary manufacturing process where every single head, and I do mean every single head, is injected and calibrated to the threshold of the legal limit. Basically, every head is what is called tour spicy. So speed for all, now available by going online to TaylorMadeGolf.com. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends, over at the PGA TOUR Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA TOUR Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA TOUR Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATOURSUPERSTORE.COM. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back in making his fifth appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is David Abley, president and CEO of TaylorMade Golf. And let me remind you just a little bit about David's background. He earned his degree in marketing and finance from the University of Connecticut. He joined TaylorMade as their general manager for their Asia-Pacific division, later moved over to be director of sales for North America, left TaylorMade for a little bit for Titleist and Yakushnik Company to become their vice president of sales and marketing, came back to TaylorMade as their executive vice president and general manager, and he took over as CEO and president in February of 2015. And I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Good evening, David. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris. How are you? Nice to talk to you again. I appreciate you, David. So, David, i tell you, great start to the golf season for TaylorMade. You, get, you got so many good things happening. You got Ricky Fowler, who made the switch over to the TaylorMade golf ball, got his first win at the Waste Management uh, Phoenix Open a, a few months ago, got over the hump. That was a tournament he was struggling to get over the hump at. He makes the switch to the TaylorMade golf ball. Boom, gets the win. You got Rory with a huge win at the Players' Championship a couple of weeks ago with Dustin Johnson, a couple of wins already this season. Tiger is always looming out there. So you got to be stoked from what you're seeing from the TaylorMade players so far.
3: Chris, it's been uh, it's been a pretty active early season, and then uh, you got my juices flowing when I was listening to Mr. Wright talk about Augusta National and the Masters, and certainly all the history that uh, he represents there and his experience there. That was just terrific. So, what what an incredible interview! Congratulations to you and and Mr. Wright. That was awesome. Uh, But yeah, we're off to you know golf is off to a good start. Most importantly, and when golf is off to a good start, you know that correlates into good momentum in our business and certainly other businesses like ours. But, you know, when I think about the athletes that are performing really uh, amongst the best of the best right now, and you and Mr. Wright had named most of them, uh, it's pretty incredible. You know, Tiger's right there uh, just about every week and and really close, uh, as you would expect from him, certainly. Uh, Dustin winning again and Rory winning uh, at the Players, which was a big win for golf, a great win for Rory and a terrific win for TaylorMade. And, uh, yeah, I think about John Rahm continuing to finish inside the top 10, and uh, all of our athletes, fortunately, at this point in time are kind of peaking at the right time and getting ready for what's going to be, I think, a spectacular week next week in Augusta.
0: So, David, I want to talk about uh, your thoughts about Augusta here in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, your equipment and the things that TaylorMade is doing, because the the M5 and the M6 drivers are absolutely outstanding. I really love the M6 that I'm playing now, and in uh, the speed injected twist face that you have there, talk about the technology and the things that have made this year's version of the drivers that much better.
3: Yeah, well, Chris, I'm thrilled that you're playing M6, and you and uh, and hundreds of thousands of other golfers uh, that are in M5 and M6 already. This product, uh, and I think we talked about um, you know the advancements of technology last time I was on the show, uh, and that every year you know companies like ours are challenged. Uh, to find something new to improve performance. And as I've shared with you and many of your listeners in the past, the mission of our company is very clear, which is to be the best performance golf brand in the world. And really why we exist is to help golfers play better. Well, one of the ways to help golfers play better is by getting equipment that is either higher performing for them or better fit for them. Well, M5 and M6 uh, are two products that, quite candidly, we have been thinking about for many years. We just really weren't certain, like, how we were going to build them. So we kind of reverse engineered our thinking, not just the technology, but our thinking about 36 months ago. And we said, you know, every major manufacturer is working within the governance of the United States Golf Association in the R&A, meaning there's a rule book of how you can design equipment and balls can only go so fast off the club face and and club dynamics can only perform at certain levels, whether it's size or speed or characteristic time or inertia values. Um, And that every manufacturer, including TaylorMade, for, for literally the last 30, 40 years, have been trying to design golf clubs to get them as close to that legal limit as possible So that you can optimize performance. And in the manufacturing process, when you try to design something as close to the legal limit as you can, you actually have a bell curve where on the left side of the bell curve, some products come out of the process where they're actually not as good as what you intended them to be. Some come out right where you intended them to be. And then kind of most of them are right in the middle. So we got together about three years ago and we said, okay, what if we kind of change the orthodoxy here? What if we try to design? every one of our new drivers at some point in time in the future, we're actually going to design them past the legal limit. And then we're actually going to construct face dynamics where we can tune every individual driver, literally test every single driver that we make. And to put that in context to your listeners, we make millions of drivers a year to test every single driver and actually inject those drivers and get them right back to the legal limit. So there's no longer a bell curve that every driver that ultimately we make will be right at the legal limit. And you use the term uh, in the transition from Mr. Wright to me about tour spicy product. Well, there's a saying out on tour, which is, hey, we're very fortunate as PGA Tour players because TaylorMade definitely tests all of our drivers, and then they sort them out, and they make sure we get the ones that are right at the legal limit. So those are spicy for us, and then everybody else will get something really good, uh, but we're getting the ones that have been tested and actually thoroughly evaluated to ensure that there are no compromises in Tiger Woods' bag or Dustin Johnson's bag or Rory McIlroy's bag. Well, we said, well, that's, that, that's good, but that's not exceptional, and we strive to be exceptional. So what if we design past the legal limit? Every club gets tested and injected right back to the legal limit, so there is no difference in coefficient or restitution. There is no difference in CT time off of the entire face, whether it's in your bag, Chris, my bag, or Dustin or Tiger or Rory. And so that's what we were able to do, and to build and construct that process and to be able to build a a production line that can test every single driver head because as they come off the line, they're all past the legal limit. We inject resin into the toe and heel ports. You can see those. If your listeners have seen these two orange plugs on the face, those are actually injection ports where resin is going in to tune each and every driver right to the legal limit. So some may have a gram of resin in the toe, a half a gram of resin in the heel, or the opposite. But every single head is identically uh, 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 positioned so that it's right against the legal limit. And then it's serialized so that we know whomever buys any of those heads, exactly what we injected in each port, and that goes up into the cloud, and it's this new wave of of construction for TaylorMade. So it's been an incredibly exciting time. The driver not only works better in terms of its speed, uh, it works better with twist-face, so it's straighter. The inertia values are higher. They are the two best drivers on the market today and certainly the two best that we have ever made.
0: So take that over to the iron side, David, with the M5 and M6 irons. Talk about the speed bridge structure that helps generate more ball speed there.
3: Yeah, so I mean, everybody is, is desires to hit the ball further. Uh, whether you play at the elite level or you play amateur golf, or even if you're a mid to higher handicapper, who wouldn't benefit from more ball speed? So, you know, materials technologies are advancing so quickly, and construction technologies are advancing so quickly that we keep taking a look at how we can actually enhance ball speed by improving in irons, particularly the efficiency of the impact points on the face. So it's not very hard to make an iron. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's not very hard to make an iron that's fast in the middle of the face. But as you and I know well, most of us don't hit every shot in the middle of the face. So we actually work on the structure of the iron to firm up what we call the rigidity of the perimeter walls of the iron. So if you look at perimeter weighting in the iron in M5 and M6, you see the back plate. There's a perimeter weight. And then there's this bar, it's called the speed bridge, that actually stiffens the rigidity of the top line of the golf club and the sole of the golf club which then enables the face to flex and drive more ball speed, not just on center hits, but across the entire face. And as a net result of that, we're getting a couple of things. One, certainly the ball is coming off faster, so you may now hit a seven iron where previously you hit a six iron. We can maintain the lofts in the iron, so it's important. You can make an iron go further by taking loft out, but it's very difficult to make an iron go further and higher. And we've been able to do that. It's got to go further. It's got to go higher. So the loft configurations, we're able to stay the same. And then importantly, how do we make it more forgiving? And SpeedBridge then enables us to kind of build more inertia value, toe and heel, to create stability in the face, and then ultimately uh, be more forgiving on off-center hits. So M5 and M6 are terrific. Uh, M6 is the hottest iron right now for game improvement in golf in the United States. We're seeing that right out of the gate. So we're very excited about that. They're longer. They're longer. They're faster, they're more forgiving. And then the important piece, Kristen, you can't miss on this. And this is what I really think differentiates TaylorMade from others. We sound test with our sound engineers to make sure they not only sound very, very good, but the sound then correlates to how they feel. So you can do a lot of things and address certain variables, but you're going to not necessarily find the complete product that sounds and feels the way you want them to sound and feel. We're able to accomplish that with the SpeedBridge technology that changes the structural dynamics of the M5 and M6 irons.
0: So take that a step further, David, because it, it is interesting to me how much sound means to folks, right? It's, it's a confidence thing. That, you know, everything about the clubs Im- impacts our ability to play them. Whether you're looking down and you and you see an iron or you see a driver and you see a head that you have confidence in just by the sight alone, and then by the sound. If if a if a a, a club works really well and it hits you straight and far, but the sound isn't right, it's gonna t- turn people off and you're gonna lose confidence in it and not want to use it. Talk about why sound makes such a difference to us.
3: Yo, Chris, you are so right. You're you're right on it. And what you just described is precisely. Uh, what happens uh, when companies really don't address every variable in golf club design. And, and that's candidly one of the things that we actually have a higher degree of intensity about, I think, than most. Uh, because if you don't sound engineer products, um, the worst experience you can have is, you know what, boy, my ball flight looks good, my speed looks good, my launch conditions look good off the driver, but it sounds so bad, I don't want to put it in play. And so if you sound, if you actually try, any of your listeners, go out and, and test different manufacturers, you'll get different sound off of each manufacturer. What most, most golfers really don't know is that 90% of what you're feeling is auditory. So when something feels really good off the club face, nine times out of 10, it's because you got the frequency right and the sound so that that correlates into what you're actually feeling. 90% of what you feel is auditory. And that's why it's so important. So it isn't just get the sound right and it'll feel good. You have to get the sound right for it to feel good. And you can't really make it feel good if it doesn't sound right. So we have literally a slew of engineers. They are sound engineers that all they work on is internal rib structures, internal composite structures, different use of materials to ensure that the sound reaches the optimum megahertz across not just one iron, so in particular, the three-iron ratios need to be different than your pitching wedge because the resonance of the product when you hit it is different. It vibrates differently. So we actually have to sound engineer every iron. We have to sound engineer every driver. We have to sound engineer every fairway with every rescue club to ensure that you get that tailor-made feel, and that's what we've done in both of these new products.
0: David, I want to move over to the putters because the Spider-X putter is really helping guys like D.J. and Rory, and some of the knocks that have been about Rory over the last few years is, you know, boy, he just if he could just get his putting right. Well, boy, his putting sure is right now. Talk about the yeah. advancements that you've made in this year's Spider X putters.
3: Well, it's funny you mentioned Rory. I was with him just last Monday uh, when he was getting ready for the match play, and I said, "How you doing, pro?" And he said, "You know what?" He said, "This putter." is the best putter I've ever put in play. And you're right, his sight lines are fantastic. He's rolling it great. He's he's winning golf tournaments, and trust me, he will contend. Uh, and I think he's got as good a chance as any to win next week at Augusta National. Uh, but the Spider product that that I think most of your listeners were uh, are very aware of is the one that we launched three years ago. We called it Spider Tour. Uh, we painted it red. Jason Day put it in play. John then put it in play. Um, And it became really the the craze not only out on tour, but it quickly became the number one played model on the PGA Tour and still is to this day Spider. And then it became the number one selling model in the marketplace. And so one of the things we do, and you and I have talked about this at length, is, all right, well, that's good. But what does the next two or three years look like and how can we make it even better? So one of the things we've tried to do, there's a few things. I'll start with the first one, is try to make the shape in the new Spider-X even more appealing than the shape of the spider tour. So it's slightly smaller. But one of the things you compromise when you go smaller is this concept of inertia again, which is stability. And, and putters absolutely have to be 100% stable at impact if you really want to hold your lines. So what we did is we actually carved the core out of the Spider X putter and replaced the core from steel and titanium and filled it with composite. So on the sole of the Spider X, one of the things that makes it look so cool is this composite core. Then we took tungsten weighting and put it in the toe and heel in the back of the putter so we were able to get the inertia values actually higher than the spider Tour. So the first thing we solved was we made it smaller, we made it more aesthetically pleasing to the eye, and we have made it more stable. Okay, check the box. We're moving in the right direction. The second thing we tried to do, and we've been able to do this, is change the insert technology a little bit. We went from a 3-millimeter polymer insert with uh, with our True Roll technology, which you're well aware of, which is Pure Roll, so the ball gets rolling faster, that was an innovation that came from TaylorMade, we went from a 3 millimeter insert to a 5 millimeter insert, which gives you better sound and softer feel. And Jason helped us with that, John helped us with that, Rory helped us with that, because they love the click, but it can't be too clicky, it's got to be soft and clicky, there's kind of a combination of formula that you want to get back to our discussion about sound testing. So we got the feel even better, so the putter feels better. And then importantly, if you look at the putter from top down, and specifically if you're looking at Rory's putter, it's copper, and it has what we call True Path technology. So True Path is essentially a white sight line that really the optical engineers, so not just sound engineers at TaylorMade, the optical engineers were able to identify the best and most appropriate way to establish a sight line that gives you a better alignment aid to the hole. And that's exactly what True Path does. So when you see that beautiful copper, and white true path, or Dustin's working right now to put a blue, a navy blue putter in play with white true path. He's working on that. When that happens and you see that, um, it just helps you putt better. And Rory noticed it immediately, went right into it, and his alignment's been better. And Rory's always been a great putter. The common misconception about Rory McIlroy from the media is that he's not a good putter. Rory's a great putter. We just needed to get his alignment a little bit better to make him an exceptional putter, and that's precisely what's happening right now. So anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful product. I think it's the most beautiful putter we've ever built, and it's becoming very quickly uh, the hottest putter in golf. So we're excited about that.
0: David, a couple more before we let you go, and I want to move over to the golf balls now because the TP5 and the TP5X are outstanding golf balls, and as I mentioned a little bit ago, it, uh, it I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Ricky Fowler made the switch and then all those years are coming close at the Waste Management. Suddenly, he gets over the top and gets a win. Talk about what's new about the TP5 and TP5X golf balls this year.
3: Yeah, Chris, you know, for years we've been in the golf ball business and we've been making what we call very good performing products, products that we've been very proud of. Uh, but I remember coming back to our company four years ago saying, Uh, This company is better than just being good and being proud of our products, that in every category we compete in, we've just talked about metalwoods and irons and we've talked about putters, but even into golf balls, we have to make the best performing golf ball in the world. And so the first thought around that was, well, multi-layer golf balls are good, but five-layer golf balls we can do more things with, so we can optimize launch speed and spin off the driver all the way through the bag and certainly retain the spin and feel qualities on short pitch shots or putts around the green. So that was the first solve with the first generation TP5, TP5X. Our testing over the past few years has essentially enabled us to work on the cover formulation of the product to improve it, which then enabled us to get the aerodynamics just a little bit better. So the product is launching a little bit higher and going a little bit faster. So what your listeners will see in TP5 and TP5X is a golf ball that is taking uh, the best aerodynamics in the game and the TP5 construction and dimple pattern and now making it launch about a degree to two degrees higher and ultimately reducing spin just a touch and improving upon the aero. And when Ricky tested it, I mean, this was a, a big, you know, in big moment in time for our company. Ricky Fowler had played a competitive golf ball his entire career since he was a kid. And he had played some golf with some of our athletes, uh, whether it was Rory or John Rahm. And he saw what was happening in the wind, and he saw the distance gains that our athletes were picking up. Justin Rose doing the same thing, picking up yardage, and Jason Day hitting it further and not compromising any short game qualities of the golf ball. TP5 and TP5X inspired him, and he said, hey, if I really want to compete at that level uh, and improve the way I play with this piece of equipment, which is the only piece of equipment that I hit on every shot, I need to move into this golf ball. And so he was able to do that. And fortunately, you know, Ricky's so super talented. Uh, he was playing well, and I think the golf ball helped him a bit. He talked about it a bit after his win, uh, and he won. Uh, but, you know, it's pretty amazing right now. We have six of the top 12 players in the world playing TP5 or TP5X, and that's a story that I really believe most of the media should tell because we are not in term- the number one ball in golf in terms of units sold. Um, But I can tell you, we unequivocally have the best ball in golf. And at the most elite levels, which will then translate down to all of us, and it is already, amateur athletes are now recognizing, much as, you know, Justin has and Dustin has and, and the team has, that TaylorMade makes the best golf ball. And when you're out on tour in the inner circles, one of the biggest conversations on tour right now is what's going on with that TaylorMade golf ball. There's so much interest in it. We're growing very
0: quickly. Can I get it in yellow anytime soon?
3: Yeah, for sure. The TP5 will be available in yellow. We just launched a a version of the TP5, really cool, called TP5 Pix, which Ricky helped us launch, which is a a 12-pole configuration with visual technology that is just really, really cool. Um, So, you can go to tailmaygolf.com and you can take a look at that, or you can go into your local retail stores or or golf professionals and take a look at TP5 picks, which is absolutely just one of the coolest things you'll ever look at. And it's a great alignment aid, and also the visual tech is just very easy to play. So, um, you may see some kind of cool things come out on tour in and around picks in the future as well.
0: So, David, as we look ahead to the Masters next week, we talked a little bit about this, but you got a real chance of having DJ, Tiger, Rory, Ricky, Fowler, John Rahm perhaps even Jason Day, all near the top of the leaderboard. Tiger obviously is, uh, like I say, the odds-on favorite, if that's the case. If you got all those guys sort of clustered around the top of the leaderboard, who are you pulling for? Are you looking for Tiger to get a fifth green jacket? Are you hoping maybe Ricky gets his first Masters? Are you hoping that Rory completes the career Grand Slam? What What storyline are you hoping for?
3: You know, I'm, I'm such a prolific golf fan. Uh, I love golf the same way you do and all your listeners do. And, and certainly because of my role at TaylorMade, I have a vested interest in all of the athletes that you just identified, Chris. <laughs> right. um, and you know what's interesting? I've got, and I'm very humbled by this, uh, as is our team at TaylorMade. We have personal relationships with all of our team. And so, you know, quite candidly, what would be a perfect scenario for us is a six-way playoff with all of those athletes, (laughs) and whoever wins, wins. Uh, So do I think we have a chance of that? I think the odds might be stacked against a six-man playoff, but I do believe that our guys, in the end, uh, will be there on Sunday afternoon on the 18th green, and there's nothing we'd like more than for one of them to put that jacket on, and and the first phone call they're going to get is from me and our team congratulating them for their great play. So let's see how it plays out next week. I I do think our team is in great form, uh, and I do think we have a really good chance of of pulling off and getting a W next week at Augusta National.
0: David, as you know, we have a large military listenership here on the show, and you guys have a wonderful military discount for our veterans and our active military personnel as well, their spouses, family members. Talk about what you guys do for our military.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, the military has been so important not only for our country and all of us as as citizens here across this this great country in the United States, but, but for our company as well. Uh, we have uh, military men and women uh, that work at our company. Uh, we support local and national causes around uh, wounded warriors and, and hero foundations around the country to to show our respect and appreciation for what's done uh, by the military to enable us to, to live in this country and, and thrive in this country. So at TaylorMayGolf.com, we have a direct military discount, which we can we can serve all the military with. So any of your listeners or all of your listeners that are 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 currently enlisted or veterans of the military, Uh, they can come to TaylorMadeGolf.com and be able to get that discount, and we're just thrilled to be able to do it. Candidly, I wish I could do more, and the military has my commitment. The best we can do, we're going to give it all to them. We really appreciate the men and women that support and serve.
0: Well, David, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you guys are doing at TaylorMade, whether it's on your website or over social media as well?
3: Well, you now you're making me sound like a pitch man, Chris. <laughs> uh, <TaylorMade> Golf. <laughs> our website is tailormadegolf.com, or you can follow us on uh, TaylorMade Golf on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And uh, you know, not only do we talk about products, but you'll be able to pick up some really cool stories about all these athletes. Not only what they do on the course, but what they do off the course. In fact, last week alone. Um, one of the really cool stories in golf was the new tour truck that we launched, the double-decker tour truck that'll serve our PGA Tour players. And, and from time to time, when it comes to, to local uh, tour events, we'll, we'll make it accessible to consumers as well and, and golfers as well, so they can experience it. But we just got a great company, filled with great people, and care deeply about the game of golf and, and all of those that, uh, that play our products and those that aspire to play our products. So uh, we, uh, we look forward to sharing those stories with you.
0: David, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always great getting to spend some time with you, learning about the great things that you guys are doing. I hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Chris,
3: likewise. And thanks for everything you do. Uh, love listening to your show and all you do for, uh, for our military men and women. Thank you so much.
0: Appreciate you, David. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That is David Abley. He is the CEO of TaylorMade Golf. They're doing great things. I'm telling you folks, that M6, you got to get your hands on one. It uh, is absolutely even better than uh, the M4 that I had last year, which was outstanding. This one takes it to the next level. Very excited about the M6 irons as well and uh, the TP5 golf balls and uh, everything about TaylorMade is top-notch. Doing great things for my game that's going to do great things for yours as well. All right, we've got my next guest, Peter Kessler, hanging on the line. I'm going to get to Peter on the other side of this real quick station break.
1: Here, PGA and LPGA legends, pros, top instructors, and media members from around the country sharing their stories, insights, and playing lessons every week right here on Next on the Tee. Take it away, Chris.
0: And now back with me on the French Lake Resort guest line is, is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and over on Twitter at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's website, PeterKessler.com, because he's got a lot of great video content and uh, some really fantastic interviews that he has done posted up there as well. And nobody knows the history of the game of golf better than Peter does. And among the great quotes that you'll hear about Peter, and I always like to share these two with you. If you weren't fortunate enough to see Peter's show, Golf Talk Live, when it was on the Golf Channel, it was by far the best golf talk show ever world golf magazine accurately called peter golf walter cronkite and a couple of years ago pga.com said peter is one of the greatest storytelling voices in the wor- in the history of the world great quotes and i couldn't agree with post statements more and very excited to have peter back again with me tonight here on next on the t good evening peter how are you my friend i am fine how's
1: my buddy can you hear me
0: uh, I can. I got you. Great. So, uh, Peter, I, I gotta tell you, I love the videos that you've been posting both out on Twitter and social media and on your website as well. You've got uh, you know, three great ones. You got the one with Sam Sneed. You've got one with Jack Nicholas and a great, uh, what was it? 17 or 18 part series that you cut up with, uh, your time with Seve Ballesteros. But talk about the time, you know, that you got to spend with all three
1: of those great individuals. Well, Seve Ballesteros, I mean, um, you know, one of the the joys of my life. And, you know, of course, he died, you know, in his early 50s, mid-50s, 54. And uh, the first time I actually met him was in 1980 because he had won the Open Championship in 79. And so he came to San Diego in eighty. And I had lived there in the 70s and for some reason was there in 80 when he came down for the uh, uh, the uh, Tournament of Champions, which was held at La Costa, where I had been a member in the club champ a few years before. And Seve didn't speak any English then. And when he was so long, people just, the, the things that people don't know about some of these guys are just so stunning. He was so long, it was ridiculous. The 18th hole at La Costa in those days was and still is a very long, really hard uphill par four into the wind. That, you know, if you were a good, if you were a five handicapper better and you played from the back tees, you would have, depending on the wind, well, you could have a five wood down to maybe four iron. I mean, it was a lot of club. So, Tom Weisskopf, I watched him hit his drive on 18. This is 1980. And then he hits three iron up to the green on 18. Seves in the next group hits three wood off the tee and eight iron onto the green. His swing speed was so incredible in the way that it gathered pace through to the finish line, not to the ball, but way past and up and outward and around. It was just the most unbelievably free action, very Tiger-esque of the early Tiger when Arnold used to say about him, he has the best release I've ever seen. Seve had that same release for a while. It was so free, and it was so fast, and it was so full, and even on his little pitches, he always finished his swing, even much later when we became friends, and I hit a lot of pitches with him, he, you know, even on a 35-yarder. he. It would finish all the way around now it wouldn't get there quickly, but it would get there, and he didn't ease into the position. He would swing to the position. It was really stunning because he he could adjust for every pitch shot and and everybody tries to do it instinctively, but he knew a lot more about it and had better feel i mean he He could make some incredibly minute adjustments like he may choose to hit the chip shot six feet high in the air instead of five feet high in the air at its apex and pick a spot that's one foot to the right. I just I mean the subtleties in terms of his landing spots and how he wanted the ball to roll out, and he didn't want things to spin. Ever. He didn't want spin, thought it was too unpredictable, and he loved hitting into the wind, didn't like downwind, didn't like left-to-right winds, didn't mind right-to-left winds, But, you know, he's one of the loveliest people that I've ever known. And Sam Sneed, interestingly enough, also spent a lot of time with me on pitching. I met Sam when I was 22 and he was 62 in 1974 when he came to the L.A. Open in a year in which he almost won the PGA Championship um, at the age of 62, which Tommy Bolt had nearly done as well, finished tied for third in 71 behind Jack at Palm Beach Gardens. So I go down to the range on the Monday night of the L.A. Open in 74. And in those days, nobody went to golf tournaments. So few people went to golf tournaments at that time that if you or I went to the first tee in a very, very star-studded field and said, okay, I'll meet you in two hours on the 10th tee, we'd see each other 15 times before we got to 10th. There was nobody there. So I went down to the range Monday night. Sam's needs there by himself, literally not another living individual. So Sam's down there on the range. I go sitting five feet behind him. And after 45 minutes, he starts to talk to me. By Wednesday, I do the same thing. Tuesday, by Wednesday night, he had said, "Let's have dinner," and I said to him, "Great." And he said, "I need an hour." And I said, "What are you going to do?" And he said, "I have to get serviced." And I thought, I "Wonder what that means," but I'm not going to ask. And so we went and had dinner. And years later, I said to Tommy Bolt who was really good friends with Sam, I said, hey, Tommy, I said, what what did Sam mean when, when he said he was getting serviced? And, you know, he got all excited and started laughing and he wiped the back of his forehead with the back of his left, front of his forehead with the back of his left hand and started giggling. he said, oh, old nudie, which is what he called Sam because it wasn't anything under the hat. He said his deal with tournament organizers were that they would actually have a woman Waiting in his room, that was his appearance fee, a woman, so that Sam could be serviced. So I had no idea for years what, it, what that possibly could mean, and I was always afraid to ask Sam. But he taught me how to pitch, and Seve, you know, taught me too, and it's the best part of my game. And when I remember what they told me, but Sam said, "If you," he said to me, what kind of player are you? And I guess I was about a three at the time, so I said three. And he said, well, if you want to be good, which was great said, so if you want to be a good player, he said, what you need to do is you need to hit 50-yard pitch shots to the exclusion of virtually everything else for a year. You can't hit anything outside of 50 yards. You can hit 20% of your shots inside 50 yards, so you're hitting some shorter pitches and chips as well. He said, but you don't do anything else for, for a whole year. So I never thought about it, never did it. And then we put in a new chipping area a couple of years ago. So on September 1st of 7, 2017, I went for 11 months, because August, for some reason, the next year stuff came up last year. So I did it for 11 straight months, hit 50-yard pitches. I played the hardest course in the history of golf, and my scoring average came down 10 shots over 90-day periods a year apart. That I, for the, pre, the 90 days before I started wow. pitching, it was 10 shots higher than the 90 days after I completed pitching 11 months later. And what happens is, When you get good from 50 yards, well, then you're good from everything in. So you know you're going to have something around 15 feet or better. You know, that even if you're 50 yards, you're pretty sure going to be inside of 20 feet, which means all of a sudden you're not three-putting, and you're going to make a few of those, and you're going to hit a few to five feet, not 20 feet. But if you know that, generally speaking, that you can hit your pitches within 15 feet of the hole, that changes everything. It reduces your number of putts, and you didn't even work on your putting. And then you have fewer bunker shots, and then you have fewer double chips. I mean, it's just an astonishing thing. And then the 50-yard swing actually becomes your real swing. It's just longer and fuller, but it's already on track. And so something inside you just lets you know to just keep going in both directions. You're not going to just make the 50-yard swing, It'll, but it'll be just a It'll feel the same. It'll just like a a putting stroke from 50 feet feels different from one from five, but still feels the same. Just that you know, it's going to have a it's going to have more beat to it, or it's going to be longer. So uh, fascinating spending time with both of those guys.
0: And Peter, to your point about 1980 and with Sevi Ballesteros, when uh, I was watching some of the conversation. He talked about his Masters victory in 1980, and, and people may not remember that being his first one, but it was a four-stroke victory over Gibby Gilbert and Jack Newton. He had a seven-stroke lead going into the final round, a ten-stroke lead going into the second nine that nearly almost evaporated because he bogeyed 10, he doubled 12, and another bogey on 13. Talk about what he shared with you about that day and about that Masters event.
1: Well, I mean, my strongest memory of that is that I had moved with my wife Janet on our one-year anniversary in June of '78 to London, and so I, you know, so I started going to the major championships. Unfortunately, I missed Jack in '78 right after we moved and I had to watch it on TV from London, but I didn't make that mistake again. And um, but in 1980, I was in uh, London. And you couldn't get the master's on television then. So my mom lived in L.A. And I called her at about the time I figured the leaders were making the turn. And she put the phone next to the television. And I listened to Sevy's whole back nine through my telephone in London, which was an extraordinary bill when it finally arrived. And I listened to the whole thing. And then I talked to him about it later, of course on a number of occasions and I said, "You know, what was that?" And, you know, he sometimes, you know, he said what what you would say he said, I, "Yeah, you know, he said, I don't know what happened." He said, "I just don't know what happened." He said, I had "Such a big lead." He said, "I, you know, I started thinking about other things. I was thinking, you know, that I won the masters." And he said, and then I had the trouble and he called it Amen Corner. And uh, he said, "Then, you know, not so easy, but till I hit the four iron under the 15th hole and I two-putted for a birdie and he said then it was okay." He said, and, of course, that's what he didn't do in 86. Six years later, again, needing, four, he decided to hit four iron, which was probably the wrong club to try to hit a soft cut, and he decelled, which is exactly what recreational players do when they have too much club in their hand. You go, oh, I'll hit a three-quarter, but you really don't because you – ease into the three-quarter position instead of swinging to the three-quarter position, which is exactly what happened to Seve. He kind of eased into it instead of swinging and making a little bit of a cut move on it. And so, you know, there he was in the same situation twice. One time it works out. Second time he also had a lead and it didn't work out. But, you know, he knew it was the golden bear in front of him. You know, in 1980, you're not worried about Gibby Gilbert. But in 1986, you're fully aware of who Jack Nicklaus is and what he's done, and you're playing right behind him, and you're watching him make, you know, six birdies and an eagle, and so that's seven holes under par out of the last ten that he played. So that fully had Seve's attention, too, in 86 when he got over that shot. But he just celebrated too early because when he hit the six iron in the 13 and he got all excited with his brother and they were celebrating and the ball was in the air and he's going, Fantastica, Fantastica. And of course, it was fantastic. I'd finished six feet from the hole and knocked the sucker in, you know, and then all of a sudden, for the moment, he was in control. But I, but he, well, he, he admitted that he just celebrated way too early. And it's, uh, hello, Jack Nicholas. And he's still Jack Nicholas. Doesn't matter what happened last year. Right now, he's Jack Nicholas at the Masters playing Jack Nicholas kind of golf. So, you know, that was in Sevy's brain, too.
0: So to your point, was was Nicholas in his head at that point? Because as I was talking to Ben Wright earlier in the show, I mean, the roar start to go up. And the next thing you know, to your point, Jack Nicholas is now Jack Nicholas of 1975, not Jack Nicholas of 1985. And things start to steamroll and the crowd starts getting behind him and the roar starts getting louder. So does that get in his head at that point? You know, Ben Wright was saying that he thought that uh, Seve rushed, rushed that shot because he wanted to get Hit that shot over with before
1: the next roar came up.
0: I don't know. Was that in his head? Do you think?
1: Well, no. He had quite uh, to the contrary. He had to wait a really long time to play the shot. You know, a little like Colin Montgomery at Wingfoot No. Six. You know, Colin standing in the right center of the 18th hole at Wingfoot. I'm sitting right behind the green. I played that course over a hundred times. So I know everything about that hole. And you know, Colin Montgomery. If you said to Colin Montgomery, okay. It's the last hole of a major championship. You can't hit a little pitch or chip for a shot. You know, if you're going to pick a full shot, where would you like to be in the fairway? Where would you like pin the pin to be, and what club would you like to hit? But it has to be, you know, nothing less than six iron. So he. So if you said that to Colin, he would say, well, six iron, because that's the club I hit the best, including my driver. And I'd like to be in the right center of the fairway, and I'd like the pin to be in the middle right. I'd like to start in the left center of the green and just hit a little cut in. That's exactly the shot he had at wing foot in '06. Now, in Monty's case, he had a long history of having issues at particularly important times. Seve did not have that history. Seve did not have the history of somebody who didn't close. You know, if you look at the most recent, you know, he could have won in 85, he could have won in 86, and he could have won in 87, he lost in the playoff in 87. It's not exactly like he didn't, you know, own the place. You know, and he won in 83 over Tom Watson and remember that when Seve first made his mark internationally, it was 76 Open Championship, and it was very important to, to him at the time and certainly for his long-term psyche and why I don't think the Nicholas thing was that big a deal in his head at the time he hit the shot is because when he made the up and down as a 19-year-old playing with Johnny Miller in the last group as Johnny shooting 66 course record on the final day to you know, win by four shots, Seve got it up and down by threading a little chip, running chip in between two bunkers. Trevino said, watching at home, he jumped out of his chair. He couldn't believe anybody would even try that shot. And Seve said, after he made the birdie, to tie Jack for second, he said, at 19, I knew I belonged and that I could compete, and it was never a doubt in my mind ever, ever again. And so after that eighty six, Remember, he made it to a playoff in 87, but three-putted 10. And then he won the British Open, the Open Championship, in 1988, shooting the final round, 65 to Nick Price's 69. And Nicky had the lead, you know, and Seve played, you know, just ridiculous golf, almost, you know, he birdie, eagle birdie at one point and almost chipped in on the last hole, made every single putt, you know, even got a laugh about it. But, you know, I I think I, I would say, yes, he was certainly aware. But he certainly didn't have a history of hitting bad shots in critical situations. So it's, you know, it can happen to anybody. I mean, Jack sure didn't do it much. Arnold did his share of it. Mijer did his share of it. So, you know, everybody has that. It was just so magnified because it was Jack and because Jack was 46 and because he hadn't won a major since 1980. And it's Seve, arguably, well, not even arguably at that time, probably the most beloved player in the world in 1986. I mean, Jack was past his prime, and, you know, Greg in 86 was popular, but Sevy was more popular and a better player, and, you know, and he, was the, he was the handsomest guy, and he was the sexiest guy, and he was the coolest guy, and he had the most charisma, and he was the most fun to watch, and, you know, so every single, you know, if you could pick anybody, you could have every single thing of you be like him, somebody playing on tour, then, you know, it would have been Sevy.
0: Peter, you mentioned Mr. Palmer a moment ago, and obviously having he won four masters and uh, but they your book ended 58 to 64. If you look at Gary Player and Jack Nicklaus. They were winning major tur- major championships for 20 25 years, right? Nicklaus at the end there in 86. But Arnold was great but for a very short period of time. Why do you think Palmer wasn't able to extend the career and end up uh winning more majors as you got into the 1970s and maybe even into the late 1970s like uh, Gary Player was and then Nicholas into the eight.
1: Well, I would say three things. I would say uh, Jack Nicholas arrived and was playing the best golf anybody had ever played exactly when Arnie became the king. And two, Arnie started to have some frailties with his putting as early as 63 when he was only 33 years old and at 34. After he won the Masters in sixty four, he was definitely having issues with his putting that would last well for the rest of his life. Um, you know, he became uh you know, he became tentative at times and left it low, or his grip pressure in his right hand was a little firm and so he'd miss it on the high side with a little too firm just outside the edge instead of just inside the edge of the hole. And you know, so the combination of Jack coming along the the erosion, certainly in his own head, of his ability to hold every critical putt was now no longer firmly in place. Now, compare that with Jack Nicholas. Now, Jack Nicholas at almost 80, is as steady over the putter on a putting green as he was when he was 25. He is as good a putter now as he has ever been. You watch him in the Park three tournament. It's a freaking joke. I mean, his putting is so unbelievable. I remember talking to Sandy Lyle, who played with Jack in 86, which, you know, most people don't remember who he played with, but he played with Sandy Lyle, who, of course, would win the Masters, you know, with that great up and down out of the fairway bunker on 18. Sandy said to me that Jack's putting stroke in the final round of that 86 Masters, he said it was like. Watching something in in we in a place where they make tools or a place where there's an assembly line, and that there are p- pieces that move he said it was he said it was like watching you know a, a steel uh, uh, the movement of a watch it was it was like watching something being constructed in an assembly line, but human hands weren't involved. He said it was just he said the space through the sky that the putter traveled and how close it stayed to the ground and the pace of the of the forward stroke and the fact that there was a that there wasn't acceleration, there was an increase to a speed like you're driving down the highway and Jack would get to fifty five and he would keep it at fifty five. A lot of guys decelerate and go fifty. A lot of guys accelerate and go sixty five. Well, if you go 65, you're going to miss it on the high side long. And if you go 50 instead of 55, you're going to miss it on the low side. And if you miss it on the low side on fast greens, that means as the ball is dying, it's dying away from as opposed to uh, as opposed to towards the hole. You know, when your putt is get the dying the last few feet, you want it dying towards the cup from the high side, not from the, cup going now falling away from you now it's three feet now it's four feet now it's five feet so all of a sudden Arnold had some of that going on too so you gotta so Jack had a stroke you know that you know is really you know a once in a lifetime kind of thing I mean Jones felt that he lost his putting at the first round of the Masters now he had retired from competition four years earlier but on the second hole he played on the first day of the first Masters, he went uh oh, guess who lost his putting touch and never got it back again? Gary Player got to keep his. Uh Tommy Bolt could still putt in his nineties. Jack can still putt and he's almost eighty. Gary Player definitely yeah, I mean just did Gary Player putt putt as good today as the day that I met him, then the dude them twenty five years before that. Uh, but Arnold lost his stroke. A lot of guys lost their stroke at 34. You know, Tom Watson, you know, had trouble at 34. Sam started having trouble at that age. Hogan lasted longer. People accused him of having trouble. But the trouble was later. It wasn't early. It was later when it didn't count. You don't win nine majors if you're not a great putter. You don't win three majors out of three majors played in a calendar year if you're not a great putter from five feet. Meant he was making everything. That means you're lagging everything right up to the edge of the hole and leaving yourself nothing, which defines Jack Nicholas's putting. You know, the great thing about Jack was that no matter how long the putt he left himself, he never left himself like another one. There was never a second putt. It was always just a tap it into the hole. There was not a lot of strenuous stuff, except at U.S. Opens where you might have to hit a chip or a bunker shot or, you know, you couldn't leave the putt stone dead because of the slope that it was on. So he had a lot of five-footers, and that's how people who grew up with him remember him as, you know, being locked in over a five-footer really steady. You know, and we found out later that what he was thinking was that, the reason he stayed over it so damn long was he was waiting until he agreed with himself that he was now going to find no possible way to miss the putt. That there was nothing he could do that could cause him to miss. Once he knew that for sure it was going in, then he would make the stroke. He and Weiskopf are partnered in the Ryder Cup one year. They're playing a they're playing a best ball match. So either the either ball can play. So Weiskopf's got uh, ten feet. Jack's got 15 feet on the same line. So Tom says, do you want me to move my mark? So Jack said, no, just pick your mark up. And Tom said, what do you mean? And Jack said, J- said to just pick your mark up. And Tom said, well, what do you mean? And Jack said, rack your cue. I've got this. And Tom said, but you're 15 feet. I'm closer. Jack said, there's no possible way I could miss this putt. Jack knocks in the 15-footer. One day I said to Jack, so how many greens did you hit in your prime? And he goes, well, I did 16, he said. So I didn't really ever work on my short game because knew I was only going to have two chips, and for sure I knew I could t- chip them to 10 feet. And obviously, I'm never going to miss one of those. So, you know, what would I be doing missing a 10 footer? I sat down with him one day, and we could only think of two putts, two between us that he missed in his whole career. Well, okay, three that 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 mattered. One in 1960 in the last round of the U.S. Open. One at Pebble Beach, where he thought the second putt broke towards the ocean on 18, and he had a chance to 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 uh, to perhaps go into a tie, but but ended up three-putting. And then the putt that he missed against Watson on the 71st hole at Turnberry, a five-footer for birdie, and Watson made a sim- putt of similar length. And then, of course, they both buried the last hole, and Watson Birdie three of the last four, and Jack had had a lead going into the last four holes. So Jack kept his stroke. Watson lost his. Watson lost his, you know not too long after he lost to Sebi in 84 at the Open Championship. So it all goes back to the root of the initial question, which was fear of Jack. And I say, yeah, not really. You know, he thought he belonged with Jack in 76. He wouldn't have had any reason to change his mind in 86 because he'd already won four major championships by then. You know, and was already the most successful player in the history of the European Tour by then.
0: So Peter, to that end, as we start to look ahead to this year's Masters, and Tiger has now become the odds-on favorite to win it. But I, I have a moment of pause, t- speaking of putting, because he's missing a fair number of those four and five footers we just saw it this past weekend in the match play. Your thoughts about Tiger? Is he, is he the odds-on favorite to win it in your mind? Because I think you gotta be a great putter to Gusta National.
1: I I wouldn't even really have him on the list, other than the fact that, you know, for some reason, for he and Phil, they they seem to be able to not play particularly inspired golf and seem to get around that golf course somehow. I played that golf course. I don't even see how that's possible. I mean, you know, I'm not Phil or Tiger, but, I mean, I just, you know, you see some of the spots when you play there where you go, He got it up and down from here. He hit the green from here. He got it 10 feet from here. He made a putt from here. I mean, it's just like you can't believe it. So, you know, so Tiger can slop it around a little bit, but, you know, slop means, but I'm putting like a genius. You can't slop and then not putt good, because then you end up with slop. Slop plus genius putting equals a good score. Plus plus sloppy putt. Sloppy plus sloppy putting is nothing good. So, I don't I mean, based on recent form, I certainly am not impressed. I mean, you know, it is still the person Tiger Woods. It's just not the player Tiger Woods. And so, you know, it's easy to get the two confused. I think he looks a little stiff. I don't think he looks particularly comfortable. I do really like his golf swing. I really, really like his golf swing. Now, I don't see, you know, and I don't believe for two seconds that, Putting bad last week means putting bad next week, or or or, or vice versa. Unless you're Tiger in his prime, and unless you're Jack Nicklaus in his prime, unless you're Arnold Palmer fifty-eight to sixty-four. I mean, you know, you you, you you know to define yourself as a great player, you have to do two things: you have to win a whole bunch of major championships, and you have to be in contention to win a bunch of major championships. From 1970 through 1980, Jack played in 44, 39 top tens. Ten wins, eight seconds. That's what you call being there. That's what you call closing. Ten out of forty-four. And Tiger did something similar over a time period of 1997 through 2008, uh, showing up, closing. So now he's not—he's showing up a little bit. He's definitely not closing. The Tour Championship was a wow that he won. It's been ten years, eleven years. It'll be eleven years now that he since he won a major championship. So. Odds on favorite. First of all, the whole idea of trying to guess who's going to win a golf tournament is so hilarious to me. It's not two teams. It's good for goodness gracious. It's a hundred people playing. Four guys in the field that nobody, including their own mothers, ever heard of are going to shoot the four best rounds they ever had in their life. And sometimes that's good enough to beat everybody in the field. Ben Curtis at the Open Championship. Charlie Cootie at the at the Masters Championship. You just don't know. There's no advance information. Rory McIlroy could be the favorite at the golf tournament. Stand on the second tee at Augusta National. Decide to hit a hard cut down the left center. Hit a snap hook. You hit snap hook it off the second tee at Augusta National. That's an eight. That's an eight. It's an actual snowman. You don't make par, you don't make birdie, and you don't make bogey. It just takes one triple, and the whole thing is over Nobody knows. Nobody knows how anybody's going to putt. Nobody knows how anybody's going to feel when you wake up in the morning. Do your fingers feel fatter today? Do the grips feel different today? Does your temple feel off today? Do you feel a little off from because of something you might have eaten last night? Is something creeping into your mind that shouldn't be? We don't know any of those things. That's why they play. It's not the Super Bowl. We say, okay, Tom Brady, and he's this age, but he's really had a great season, and the other teams could be intimidated. And this quarterback's, you know, maybe a good young quarterback, but he's never been in the Super Bowl before. So Mm. I like Tom Brady's chances in the New England Patriots, and they've already won five. You know, you can at least have a discussion. When there's 100 people as opposed to two teams, that means 100 people can win the tournament. Now, there's only five to 10 realistic, serious contenders that we expect to be there on Sunday. But somebody who's never done it will do it. Charles Schwartzel. Birdie, the last four holes. I never knew who he was before, and I know more about golf than anybody in the history of the world. Guy Birdie's the last four holes. You just don't know. So, favorite, prohibitive favorite. Oh, stop already. Can we just watch the thing? Why can't it be like a movie? (laughs) When I go to the movies, I don't want to see any interruption. I don't want anybody to tell me beforehand. That's why I don't watch the coming attractions, because they tell you the whole damn thing. I want it to unfold. I want it to be a surprise. If I read the book like The Godfather, okay, I kind of know what to expect. I don't know what to expect next week, and I don't care what happens. I just want it to be great. I just want it to be fun. I'm not going to root for anybody in particular. I just want it to be a great golf tournament. If Tiger plays, great, fantastic. Odds on favorite my eye. There's no such thing as any of that. There's like 10 or 15 guys you can bet on, and if you can only bet on one of them per year in your pool, there's absolutely no way of trying to figure out how to do the thing because there's no great players who are in contention, who can close major championships with regularity that we can count on because nobody's good enough.
2: Peter, having said all
0: that, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things that uh, that you're doing whether it's
1: on your website or it's on uh, social media as well. I have no idea what I'm going to do next. I mean, you know, I got all kinds <laughs> of stuff up on Twitter. I have comedy on Twitter. I have essays on Twitter. I have like uh, Twitter sniper stuff. I have me singing songs. I have me doing parodies. I have me writing and singing master songs. All of key. all of them cool. Serious commentary. All kinds of stuff from the greatest library in the history of golf created by me. All of that stuff is online. All of that stuff, really, social media is the place to go. Check out my Twitter account. If you like really good content. You want it 90-second chunks because everybody just needs it to be brief now. That's what I made for you. And every second of the 90 seconds is absolutely delicious. So check out my stuff. Nobody else knows how to do it. And there's everything you could possibly think of from, people crying during interviews, to people hysterical, to to comedy, to everything you can possibly imagine. Just go check out my stuff on Twitter. Look at my stuff at PeterKessler.com. It's the best stuff around. I'm working my way back in the middle of the deal. So if you like me, that's good news. If you don't like me, Glenn Fry, the Eagle, said to me one day during a round of golf, he said, Petey, now that you're on TV and doing this, he said, what you need to know is if 10% of the people don't like you, He said, that's the right number. He said, you don't want everybody to like you. He said, 90% is the number. He said, so if 90% like you, don't worry about the other 10. Believe me, I do not worry about the other 10.
0: (laughs) Yes, I can attest to that. Peter, you're the best, my friend. Spending Tuesday nights with you is always the best. Thank you so much for continuing to be a part of the show and come back as often as you have. You're, uh, You're a national treasure, and I can't thank you enough for being here.
1: You're my guy. I love you, buddy. Take good care of yourself.
0: You do the same, Peter. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Goes both ways. I told my wife and son you wished them happy birthday. I didn't forget, and they were appreciative.
0: I appreciate that. Take care, my friend. We'll catch up
1: soon. Thank you. See you,
0: Peter. That is the great Peter Kessler. Again, PeterKessler.com, at Peter Kessler on Twitter. It just doesn't get any better, and he's right. The, the content, the videos, the things that he is doing, absolutely spectacular. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out to Mr. Ben Wright, David Abeles, and Peter Kessler for joining me tonight. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page over on Facebook, Next on the T with Chris Mascaro. Give me a comment. Give me a like. That's very important to me. Plus, also check out our website, nextonthetea.net. On there, you'll be able to see who... Some of our future guests are going to be, plus we link back to our page over on Podbean so you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free. Take us with you on your smartphone by downloading the Podbean app. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazeri, plus our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show streams live every Thursday nights right here on Blog Talk Radio from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can also stream us on just about any of the podcasting sites out there, this show and Thursday Night Tailgate. Like I say, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Boom. You can also check us out on podcast.co, a new site that uh, streams a lot over uh, across the pond, as they say, over in England, but also you can uh, stream it here as well. So please check us out on both sites. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who come on and share their stories from their playing days and give us their insights into what's going on around the league now. Plus, we also highlight two players doing great things in their communities on our spotlight on the positive side. That show website, ThursdayNightTailgate.com, and again, this one, on tea.net. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We know you got a lot of podcasts and golf content available to you. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the Tee a part of that. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. And listening to Next on the G with Chris Carol Where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors And media members Go to tell their stories Join us the same time every
2: Tuesday